0: A philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Ted Cohen, professor in philosophy, the College, the Committee on Art and Design, and the Committee on General Studies in the Humanities at the University of Chicago. And he's here to talk to us about metaphor. His recent book on this topic, Thinking of Others, on the Talent for Metaphor, was published in 2008 by Princeton University Press. Ted Cohen, Welcome. (laughs)
1: I'm glad to be here. Actually, you're in my office, so welcome to you.
0: Uh. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So maybe we could just begin by talking about a couple examples of metaphor. What are some examples of metaphors that occurs in in everyday language?
1: Well, sometimes you're not really sure. When a metaphor has died, then it's not a metaphor. In fact, the phrase dead metaphor is a kind of an oxymoron, but they are pervasive. The problem is to say when the thing is no longer metaphorical, and of course a rough-and-ready test is simply to consult a dictionary. If the thing has frozen so that, in his example, I could murder a chicken sandwich, if that has become a kind of an acceptable sense of the term, then that's going to be listed in the dictionary as one of the meanings of this word, and to say that will no longer be a metaphor. Metaphors in general are devices, but they're not the only ones, for and now we speak very loosely, saying something and meaning something else. Now, whether the something else is another meaning or not is a technical issue that I have no stake in. My colleague Joseph Stern has a stake in it, and he thinks there's another meaning. I'm not so sure. But there are, <clears throat> there are a number of things like that. Allegories are like that. Parables are like that. And, of course, ordinary idiomatic expressions are. For instance, there are a bunch of expressions that are always not necessarily euphemistic, of saying that somebody died. In Britain, for instance, especially Ireland, they say, he went west. Some people say, he bit the dust. He gave up the ghost. He bought the farm. None of those is a metaphor. Those have all now had attached to them a meaning, meaning he died. And you may, or you may not, know how it is that that ever came to mean that he died. He went west isn't hard to understand. That's where the sun goes now. He bought the farm is impenetrable, unless you happen to know the history of government life insurance in America during the First World War. But when metaphors really get used, you're going to look in two places. They get used in ordinary language, just in ordinary conversation, especially between people who have some facility with the language. And, of course, they appear in artistic contexts, particularly in poetry and especially in lyric poetry. And the study of this stuff, which is no more than about 30 years old now, maybe 35 years old, tends to take either the form that it has, for for instance, for my colleague Joseph Stern, of a set of technical questions in the philosophy of language, or it, for somebody like me, who is more interested in the philosophy of art generally, it less technical questions about what the point of such uses of language are. And the first thing you realize is that a metaphor is probably small-scale, although not necessarily, a small-scale crystalline work of art. It takes a certain kind of imaginative capacity to make one, and it requires something special on the part of anybody who hears it to understand it. And that's the kind of stuff I work on. Metaphor, in my view, is the principal figure of speech along with irony. But irony works rather differently. With irony, once you realize that the expression is ironic, and that may be a problem, but once you realize that it's ironic, it's not too hard to figure out what it means, With a metaphor, you probably realize right away that if this thing isn't nonsense, it's figurative, and it can be very difficult to figure out what it means. Try reading, for instance, a few pages of Wallace Stevens' poetry and try to understand what's being said in there. And then, of course, there are cases where the metaphor goes simply unrecognized. For instance, in Blake's poem, it would be strange, but it's not impossible to read the poem, O Rose, Thou Art Sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark secret love does thy soul destroy. You can understand that poem to be about something going wrong in your flower garden, but of course it's about sex. And in a rather more interesting example, although uh, I don't, the Blake poem is a wonderful poem, there is a book in the Bible, a very short book in the Bible which goes under different names, depending on what religion you are. Sometimes it's called canticles. Sometimes it's called the Song of Solomon. In Hebrew, which is written, it's called the uh, Shir Hashirim, and usually called the Song of Songs. You can read that whole poem about, it sounds like gardening. Come into my garden, taste the fruit. Of course, it's about the sexual awakening of a young man and a young woman. And, and once you get onto that, you realize there are four different people speaking in this poem the young woman, the young man, the young woman's brothers, the young women called the daughters of Jerusalem. So I don't mean that it's always so easy to tell that what you're dealing with is a metaphor, but you know it right away when you hear Macbeth doth murder sleep, or All the World's a Stage, or Juliet is the Sun. Shakespeare is rife with these things. Then the problem is to figure out what it really means. Whereas with irony, if, for instance, you decide that you've wasted everybody's time in conducting this interview, and you then say to somebody who recommended that you do it, ''Oh, well, thanks a lot for sending us to Cohen. It was just a terrifically enlightening interview.'' You speak ironically, and you mean that it was a complete waste of time and an utterly uninteresting interview. But once you know that it's ironic, it's not quite clear to me what the function is. It's not just the contradictory of what you said. You don't just mean that this was not a good interview.'' you mean it was a terrible interview. It's as if there were a scale, and what you said puts it this high above the middle, and what you meant is that far below, something like that. So I like those things, and of course what I really like about them is that this is what what art is, come on. It's the thing we do that we don't need to do. And because of that, it's the place where human beings exhibit their freedom.
0: That's fascinating. I have a couple of questions (laughs) about what you said. So one question goes back to what you said at the beginning about the way that a metaphor can become frozen, the way that it becomes just the meaning of a word, so Mm -hmm. it went west. What that makes it sound like is that there's actually nothing about a certain combination of words that on its own makes it a metaphor. Because it seems like what you're saying is that something could be a metaphor the first time someone says it. Mm -hmm. And then many years later, once it's got frozen, as you put it, it's no longer a metaphor. So there's something about the context of the use of the word, how long it's been in use that has to do with whether it's a metaphor. That I found, I found fascinating. The other thing that I found interesting was what you just said, which is that it's something that we don't need to do. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could say more about that, because it seems like someone could say, well, absolutely, we do need to do it. There are certain things that cannot be said except metaphorically. Would you tend to agree with that, or would you have a different view?
1: I think there's some things that probably can't be done in any other way. Uh, There has been an argument that I think in some ways is misplaced over just this issue. It occupied literary critics and theorists in the middle, and a little earlier than the middle of the 20th century. The question was whether in fact it was possible to say what a metaphor says, and to say it literally. And the people who said that you could were charged with what was called the heresy of paraphrase. It's a very peculiar use of the word paraphrase because paraphrase usually means just give us something shorter. You know, We haven't got time to hear your whole report, Fred, so just paraphrase it. But with regard to metaphor, it has come to mean kind of explaining it. So you're going to paraphrase Juliet as the sun. You're going to say things like, well, she's the center of the universe. She's a source of warmth and light and stuff like that. The question was confused for a long time because two things were put together and thought somehow to just belong together. The first thing was the idea that the metaphor is just elliptically a simile. He's not saying Juliet is the sun, he's saying she's like the sun. And now now we've got this simile, Juliet is like the sun, all the world's like a stage, so on and so forth. That's literal, and that would say literally what's being said metaphorically. What's wrong with this view is the simile isn't literal. There is no property possessed by both Juliet and the sun, in virtue of which Juliet is said to be like the sun, that makes any difference. They have some properties in common. They occupy space. Light is reflected off one, emitted by the other. They have a location in time. But that isn't what Romeo is getting at. He's saying she's warm. She's not warm like the sun is warm. She's bright. She's not bright like the sun. This simile is still a metaphor. So, People who don't want to allow for the literal equivalent of a metaphor have no need to resist the idea that it can be done as a simile. On the other hand, a metaphor is kind of wide open, right? When you're from the UK, you can do this accent better than I. When Bobby Burns says, my love is like a red, red rose, why not say my love is a red, red rose? Well, one answer is the poem won't scan properly if it doesn't have this extra. And that's important. But the question is, with regard to what are these things being pulled together? And the best work on that subject is done by Joseph Stern. The, the answer, of course, always is the context determines it. As any metaphysician will tell you, given any two things at all, they're alike in some way or other. So, of course, A is like B, whether you're talking about Juliet and the sun or chickens and turkeys. That has to be worked out. Not worked out a whole lot by me. But the question was, are you saying something that can't be said otherwise? And now, this is where one doesn't know exactly what to say. I wish to say, I will say, you're going to do something that you can't do otherwise, unless the metaphor is awfully lame. But now, that's what poetry is. Poetry, not always, lots of kinds of poetry, but poetry is often the wish to compress the language and squeeze out of it everything that you can get. Well, why do that? Why not be more expansive? Well, here's a kind of an example. I have been involved in any number of absolutely pointless discussions, which as I get older I try to avoid and my time is going to run out, over whether you can translate poetry. I think on one level the answer is the answer that Klein and I once gave together uh, to a fool named Paul DeMond which is that, of course it can be translated. Why would you think it can? Well, because you can't preserve the meaning. Yes, you you might, you might. But if you're looking for a case where you really say, no, I can't, one of the best examples you can find is this. There was a Czech man named Anshel, A-N-S-C-H-E-L. He shortened his name and made it easier for people to say it by turning it into A N C E L. Ansel. And then after the Second World War, when he was living in France, he made an anagram of Ansel and turned his name into Ceylon, Paul Ceylon. He has a poem which uh, the title translates fine into English called Death Fugue. The first line is, der Tod, death, ist ein Meister aus Deutschland. Untranslatable. Why? Because we haven't got any word in English that will do what Meister does. None. Death is a master from Germany? Well, why don't we go for maestro? Well, maestro, I mean, it sounds too much like music, right? Meister is the right word, particularly because it's a German word. So what can you do? If I were the translator, my German isn't good enough to be a tra- I wouldn't translate it. I'd leave it the way it is. If I did translate it, I'd put in a big footnote explaining how maybe I shouldn't have done that or I should have done it in a different way. If what happens is that whatever is coming across is being delivered compactly, then probably something is lost if you release the compaction and wind up with something a whole lot longer. It's very hard to say what that is. One thing I've thought of, but I'm not resting uh, my reputation on this, is uh, if you are trying to understand, as I once was, I've given up. And it's really outside my fields of expertise. I'm trying to understand how the Romans can have been such wonderful engineers and yet to have made virtually no interesting discoveries over the entire period of the empire in mathematics. By the end, they're barely beginning to understand the utility of a place value notation. And then you take a look at the way the Romans represent numbers. It's a really wretched way of doing it because it doesn't suggest anything. The Arabs have got a way of representing numbers that does suggest something. And if what you thought was, well, you know, we're just trying to say that 2 plus 3 is 5, or maybe the square root of 2 is irrational. It doesn't matter how we represent this. I think you're wrong. I think it may make a big difference. The capacity to stimulate, the capacity to, you know, to excite the imagination. And something like that may be going on in the enormously efficient way that a poem gets something across. Death is a meister from Germany. Just does it. And of course it also happens in romantic poetry. It happens in the poetry you probably grew up on. It happens in Wordsworth. It happens in Coleridge. It also happens in in wildly different kinds of poets, like the American Walt Whitman. So yeah, uh, the answer to the question is yeah. I think that something happens, in the case of a very successful metaphor, that can't be done without it. And you think, I think, that that maybe contradicts the idea that, like art, it's something we don't have to do. But I mean that we don't have to do it in sort of a cute way. I mean, you've got to build a house in order to keep from being done in by the elements. You've got to make a vessel that will hold liquid in order to drink things. You don't have to make the vessel beautiful, and you don't have to make the house. But we do. Why? And when I say it's because we don't have to, I think it's the place where you're free, you have got to get some kind of shelter, especially if you live in Chicago, or you're going to die in the winter. You have got to make an automobile or something like it if you are going to travel long distances in a relatively short period of time. Do you have to do what Detroit did in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, namely turn into one of the most fabulous design operations in the history of it? No, you don't, but you do. Why do you do that? And I think... The answer is, it sounds cute, but I live with it. it what It is incumbent upon us to do it because, exactly because it's what we don't have to do. That's where your humanity shows. I realize that this is unfortunately something of an echo of Kant. I mean, it, it means that these things are not, as Kant would put it, they're not conditional, they're not hypothetical. The explanation for why they're done is not some other thing. It comes from somewhere else. Kant thinks it comes from this weird thing in which, you know, he borrows the Rousseau idea in which, well, yes, you were told to do it, but you told yourself to do it, and so you're free. I mean, you know, he, he sees this sort of paradox that, and he takes Rousseau's solution. Rousseau says, in order to be free, people have to be without constraints. On the other hand, if people live without constraints, what you get is not freedom, you get chaos. What's the solution? And the answer is... It is a constraint, but it's a constraint imposed by oneself. And then comes the hand-waving in Rousseau. How do we figure out how to give the law to ourselves? Should we take a Oh, no. We do what? Oh, I used to study Aristotle with a wonderful British scholar. It was actually Welsh. His name was G.E.L. Owen. And I would show up at his office once a week and, and we would work on Aristotle. And I remember one day when he came in late and he apologized profusely. And then he said, the problem is, we just, in the department meetings, we never take a vote. We just sit around waiting for the general will to surface. <laughs> and, of course, Rousseau knows that just voting is not okay, but then we get this sort of myth of the, of the will. But this is what, of course, Kant does. And he says that, yeah, right, you know, you have to be acting on something, but if it's imposed externally, then you're not free. How could you be free? He says, well, you give the law to yourself. That all just sounds good. The question is whether it means anything. So I don't go in that direction. I think that the human need to be free is the human need to discover yourself, to find out what you are. And, of course, this is connected with the theme I've been uh, sounding in my off-key manner for years and is a big part of my jokes book. I, I think that what we're coming close now to understanding is that part of this need to realize what you are is connected to your wish to connect with other people. Because what you find in Elizabeth Elizabeth Anscombe's marvelous translation of the philosophical investigations, there is one thing I think is wrong. My former colleague and excellent scholar, Leonard Linsky, thinks that Elizabeth is right, and we will disagree about this forever. Wittgenstein says, sometimes people simply don't understand one another, and we learn this when we come into a place where even though we all speak the same language, and then he says, wir können uns nicht in sie finden. And Elizabeth translates that as, we cannot find our feet with them. If you don't read this as an idiom, and read it literally, wir können uns nicht in sie finden, means we cannot find ourselves in them. I think that's what he means. I think that when, when you tell me a joke that you think is funny, and I find it funny, you find yourself in me. There's something in you that's in me, and that's a gratification. That's one of the reasons why, if you tell me a joke and I don't laugh, you not only maybe feel bad about something, but you, there's something gone wrong here. There's some difference between you and me that, if I may paraphrase a remark I've made in print at least three times, the only way that you can imagine a world worse than one in which we had absolutely nothing in common with one another So that we never laughed at the same jokes, liked the same paintings, chose the same food, murdered the same chicken sandwiches, would be a world in which we were exactly like one another. Would be a world bereft of surprises. You wouldn't be taking a risk when you told me a joke. You'd know I'd like it because I'm just like you. Instead, we inhabit a a more interesting world, but a dangerous one. You know, you get it wrong.
0: So maybe we could talk about that. So... The kind of account you've been giving of metaphors and irony and jokes is one according to which they're all doing the same kind of thing. They're all examples of ways in which we somehow live within and yet break the rules that are laid down for us. And so we, uh, we get in touch with our freedom, with what's human in us. That sounds like a wonderful thing, something to be valued. One issue that you've written on is the question of whether there can be such a thing as a joke that's not valuable. You might say an offensive joke, Mm. the kind of joke that should not be told. So it seems like a fairly common thought to have that some jokes are just not acceptable. Even if one person tells a joke and the other person gets it and they both find it funny, it's not a good thing that that happened because the joke is offensive. It's offensive to some racial group or some religious group. What's your understanding of that kind of situation? Is that a case in which this natural capacity is somehow perverted, or is it really just like any other form of joke-telling? Does it still have the same value?
1: Well, I think it does, but I've been at odds with people over this ever since I published. The first thing I ever wrote about jokes was a paper called Jokes, and people have been (laughs) saying that I'm wrong. But I can't find anybody saying anything that makes me retract. What you would have to show, maybe I give away my own convictions about morality... You would have to show in some way that I found compelling that telling these jokes harms anybody. I know that there are people who think that that happens, but I don't know any evidence for it. For instance, people will say, well, you know, it creates these stereotypes. I say, no, it doesn't. If the stereotype weren't already there, a Polish joke would make no sense. Well, it pervades it. Really? I don't know. What makes the situation complicated is that I mean, suppose that you do something and then I, I tell some joke and, and I say, oh, I want to tell you about uh, the science prizes that were given in Poland this year. And then you object or somebody objects, let's not make it be you, and says, no, 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 this joke traffics in a stereotype in which polls are portrayed as being benighted, maybe even stupid. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's not true. The whole damn joke isn't true. If that's your objection that untruths are involved? How come you weren't on your feet when you read Hamlet saying there was never a prince of Denmark? So the first thing you have to confront is that a joke typically is a very short story. It's a piece of fiction. What does it mean for this to be somehow immoral? And I think absolutely. If it pains you to hear these things, don't tell me jokes about the Holocaust. I just don't like them. Does telling those jokes about the Holocaust cause any other kind of pain? I don't know that it does. I think that you should no more tell a misogynist, sexist joke to somebody, typically a woman, who is offended by it than you should go up to this woman and pinch her ass. She doesn't want it, so don't do it. That's not a hard lesson to learn about living. The harder lesson to learn about living is that not everything that you don't like is immoral. My mother used to speak, especially during her 80s, as if everything she didn't like was not only immoral, but ought to be made illegal, there be something on TV shows. said they oughtn't to let those people on there. They, who? Why? What? There probably is something here, but I just don't, I don't get it -- is telling a joke of the kind that you have in mind? I tell one of them in my book, and people have written about this a lot. I, maybe they never heard this joke, so they need it. Question is, uh, how do you stop a bunch of black guys from committing a gang rape? Give them a basketball. Now, is that offensive? Offensive in what way? Like farting in public? What? Would you tell that to your black friends? Depends. You know, some yes, some no. I once told this joke in a public gathering, and I'll probably do it again on Tuesday because I'm a little short of material. I said, you know, we have manufactured this wonderful substance to help our Catholic friends avoid gaining weight. They're getting fat. We have manufactured for them a no-fat, low-cal communion wafer so that at least when they're taking the host, they won't be beefing up. And we have marketed this quite successfully under the brand name I Can't Believe It's Not Jesus. (laughs) A woman I know who is an American Irish Catholic said she thought this was an anti-Catholic joke. I don't think so. A man in England, when I first gave a talk about jokes, it was, uh, you know where Chipping Camden is? It's in the Cotswolds. Lovely. Lovely. After the day was over, and we were living in this inn for a few days, me and a bunch of English philosophers, this man, whose name I can't remember, said that he thought he knew a pretty good joke, and he'd like to tell it to me, but he was afraid I would be upset because he thought it was an anti-Semitic joke. And I said, go ahead, I mark it, you can't glut. Uh, this was his joke. An uh, English lady goes into her classroom, young children, one day, and says, before you do anything else, students, I would like you to answer the question... Who is the greatest moral teacher in the history of the world? And no student volunteers an answer. So she asks again, the greatest moral teacher ever in the world. The boy puts up his hand. She calls on the boy and he says, "Uh, Jesus. She says, absolutely right. But I can't understand this. How is it that you, the only Jewish student in the class, knows the answer to this question? And the boy says, well, teacher, you know, and I know, that the right answer is Moses but business is business. <laughs> the joke didn't strike me as anti-Semitic, but I can see why he thought it was, and I can also see why he thought I might not like it. But my view about that is, well, then don't, you're not entitled to inflict those things on people. And when you do, you sometimes hit them twice. You say something that makes them feel bad to hear, And when they don't like it, you say you have no sense of humor. So now it's their fault. Well, that's no good. But I don't understand why that's any more complicated than saying to people, when I was a boy, I grew up with farm boys and girls in rural Illinois in a school that had about 90 kids in it. And these boys were were strong and big. And one of the things they kind of liked to do was to punch one another, not in the mouth, but in the shoulder that kind of paralyzing, you know, disabling thing. I hated that. And in my view was, well, then they shouldn't have done it to me. They want to do it to one another, okay, but don't do it to me. Why not? I don't like it. I don't know that I have to supply any justification. I can just say I don't. But then we get a really, this is where my hero J.L. Austin is just so good. Forget all that moral theory and, Hume, oh, and all this stuff. And start asking yourself, interesting questions about how human beings behave what they feel about one another you shouldn't punch me in the shoulder if i don't want you to you shouldn't tell me certain kinds of jokes if it makes me feel bad okay is it alright for you to chew your food with your mouth open i don't like that either do you owe me somehow not doing that does it bother me if you talk like a valley girl and you say like all the time Do you have to che- i think there are no hard rules here but there's something sort of to be negotiated and You know, Austin says, in in A Plea for Excuses, he says, we might make some headway in aesthetics if we could forget about the beautiful and get down to the dainty and the dumpy. He's quite right, because then there are no theories. This guy is writing a letter to a young man, giving him advice about how to develop his intelligence and his character. And finally, he comes to the question of what to read in moral philosophy. And he says, don't read anything. This stuff's just a waste of time. A better thing, he said, is to read stern. He means Tristram Shandy. And then he says, state a problem. He means a moral problem. To a plowman, farmer, and a professor, the plowman will give you an answer that's at least as good and probably better because he doesn't have any theories. It's Thomas Jefferson. As I told my class today, I have wondered this for years. I now know the answer, and it it really bothers me. Every philosophy department I know at least one that's big enough to do much of anything. I'm a little college that has only three or four faculty, probably can't do it. But teaches courses, for instance, in Marx. And, of course, God help us, Hegel. I don't know any philosophy department that teaches courses in Jefferson and Madison. Why do you think not? You think Jefferson isn't as smart as Marx? But, of course, it's the American disposition to think that all higher learning and all culture comes from Europe. And it, it's too bad. Think about things like that. What does it mean to be ashamed of something? Well, sometimes you feel ashamed because you have done something that you think probably you shouldn't have done and people have seen you do it. That's one thing. But other times you feel ashamed not because you've done anything wrong but because you should have been able to do this in private. You're using the bathroom and somebody sees you. You're trying to get dressed and you're naked and somebody sees you. It's worth reflecting on that part of the book of Genesis. After they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the first time, they're ashamed of being naked in front of one another. That's amazing. What happens when human beings deal with one another? What should we forbear? What don't we have to forbear? If somebody tells me while I'm riding on the bus, he doesn't like it that I cross my legs, I'm not going to. But if he tells me, I don't like it that you're playing your music so loud, that's a different thing. Do you think there's a hard, fast rule? No, there isn't. There's just kind of figuring it out. You know, you know, (laughs) you know the Tom Stoppard play Acadia? You should read his wonderful play. At one point, the wonderful woman character is asked why she doesn't get married. And she says, what would be the advantage of getting married? Then you couldn't fart in bed.
0: (laughs) Well, I think on that flatulent note, we can draw this to a close. Ted
1: Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to supply a flatulent note.
0: To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.